Hello, I'm Paula Simons. Welcome to this special pop-up episode of Alberta Unbound. This Sunday, June 20th, is World Refugee Day. And this Monday, June 21st, is National Indigenous Peoples Day. And in Edmonton, Cheryl Whiskeyjack and Omar Jacob will be celebrating those two days together. Dr. Whiskeyjack is the executive director of the Bent Arrow Traditional Healing Society. That's a social agency that works with Indigenous children, youth, seniors, and families, providing support to members of Edmonton's urban Aboriginal community. Omar Jacob is the executive director, or as he prefers to be known, the servant of servants, at the Islamic Family and Social Services Association of Edmonton. Omar actually approached me to ask if we could do a special edition of Alberta Unbound to mark World Refugee Day and National Indigenous Peoples Day this year, and to talk about how he and Cheryl are forging deep and special relationships between their two communities, relationships that begin from the moment when Indigenous drummers and dancers welcome newly arrived refugees at the Edmonton International Airport. Since Omar first reached out to me, the Senate of Canada has passed legislation that incorporates a treaty acknowledgement into the citizenship oath. That's the good news. It's also, however, been a month when we've all been forced to confront the racism deeply woven into the fabric of our Canada. So here's our conversation about what it means to Cheryl and Omar to be Albertan and Canadian in a month marked by tragedy, and what they're doing as community leaders to face together the challenges of building a more just community for everyone. Last week, the Senate of Canada passed Bill C-8, which adds a line to the citizenship oath. It effectively asks all new Canadians to swear to uphold treaty rights and the constitutional rights of Indigenous people. So I wanted to start there. What does that change represent to you? And what do you think that will mean for the people around you? And Cheryl, can I start with you? Sure. Um, I was really um, quite delighted to uh, receive that message from you last week that that had indeed passed and uh, I think it means a lot and I'm actually quite surprised that it wasn't there already Um, but I think it's very meaningful I think when people come to Canada these days um, they come with that very solemn um, feeling of responsibility feeling of gratitude um, for the opportunities that are awaiting them in this land. And I think having that a part of their ceremony to become citizens of the land means a lot. And um, I think it means a lot when they come, but when they in fact have that ceremony, it just sort of affirms um, something that I think they already came here with. Um, And I think we'll see a huge difference down the line as these citizens, um, their children grow up and things like that. Um, I think people now just thought it was a given because I did. And Omar, what do you think it means for the people who are taking the oath? I I think it's really important. I think it corrects uh, corrects an oversight, a mistake that we've been making for for generations. And one of the things that's that's really sad, that's really disparaging, is oftentimes when newcomers come here, within days, even before they speak English, they're picking up on negative stereotypes. They know that you know Indigenous people are. Um, are treated differently in Canadian society within, you know, just landing from the airport. And that, that speaks volumes about how deep-seated racism is in Canadian society. And while, while I don't think this is enough, I think it's, a, it's an effort to correct some of those things 
know, the other thing I think as, as newcomers coming in, oftentimes we disconnect ourselves from this story of being settlers. And I think this helps to reassert that, you know, we're, we're settlers and we have obligations. So where do you think those damaging first impressions come from? I think in my own speech on C8, I used a phrase I made up called ambient racism. I don't know if that's a fair Mm. term. I mean, is it that, is it that hard to pin down or do you think there are specific experiences that, that new immigrants and refugees have that, that give them that impression right off the bat? I'll jump in. Um, You know, one of the things that we learned when we started spending time with newcomers as an organization um, was um, if you picture yourself, for example, moving to um, Toronto um, and you have friends in Toronto, your friends in Toronto are going to tell you where the good schools are, where the affordable sort of neighborhoods are, if you're going to concentrate on buying a home. Um, where's the best place to get uh, the farmer's markets or produce, whatever, like you're going to be telling your friends yeah. all of the things you know about the place that you call home. And um, the the newcomers that are coming here, we're often hearing some of those uh, narratives and pieces of advice from their people in their own community. And they were told that when they came here. Um, mm. Then I think um, media, um, policies and just sort of being observant you see that that media that pardon me that narrative gets fed um, by things that you see in the media by the way you see people being treated in general Um, and so it comes from it starts with your own community and it's all well intentioned because you're trying to help these people have a good settlement experience Um, but then it gets fed by the way you see society um, treating indigenous people and it just affirms uh, affirm those narratives for people. And in spending time with newcomers who are coming here in all kinds of ways, um, we are able to sort of dispel those, those, those narratives and um, see how much common ground we have in our worldviews. Um, and so this, this, uh, this bill being passed just affirms that from, from the time they become citizens of this country and it just will carry on as they go forward because they made that, that oath. Hmm. Omar, how, how would you respond to what Charles just said? Yeah, I, I would agree wholeheartedly with that. I, you know, I wonder about what you were saying about, is it ambient racism? Um, in software, they, they often talk about things being bugs or things being features. And I wonder if it's a feature of our colonial society that we have this type of racism built in, right? It's, it's part of the origin story um, of how we got here. And how do we work to really address that in a systematic way right because if we if we say this is just a an unintentional consequence it's not it's not something that's deeply um, built into the way we do things it almost gives us a pass but if we start to say hey racism is actually a functional consequence that that was intentional in the way we built things then we we actually have to change the way we see things and say oh you know how do we how do we write systems how do we compensate for past injustices because our system was built to do this very thing yeah yeah and then this is this is the logical consequence of the programming mm-hmm. so cheryl I, I don't know how to put this exactly so I'm, i will i will i will try and see if i can do this without putting my foot deeply into my mouth and down my throat i can only imagine that for some members of like edmonton's urban indigenous community 
It might be frustrating sometimes to see refugees arrive and receive all kinds of government settlement services and social supports that people who are coming here from faraway reserves or from the Northwest Territories just don't receive. Do you think there are people in the urban indigenous community who are, are, are then set up to resent new immigrants because they see, you know, refugees getting things that, that they don't, that they don't get. Is that, is that a fair question to ask? I I'm really glad you asked that question because one of the things I was going to add on to Omar's last comments was that um, there is absolute political gain to be had by keeping our communities separate by keeping our communities sort of having this perception of one another um, then it allows these sort of systems to perpetuate and and um, uh, become an advantage to people that aren't us there is gain to be had by creating that narrative that because there's also a narrative out there that indigenous people get everything we don't pay taxes we don't pay for school right yeah. that's a narrative that's out there that's false and so um you know there's people out there who have a resentment to indigenous people because that's a that narrative is out there and it's not true um so to have that narrative out there about newcomers and refugees getting all these perks um there are people absolutely in the indigenous community who who hold that um, but my responsibility as a community leader is to dispel those, dispel those uh, falsehoods and um, encourage our communities to spend time together to get to know one another. Because every time we do, there is so much enthusiasm and so much excitement, um, so much likeness um, between our communities. Every time we get together, it's, um, it, it doesn't even surprise me anymore because all we have to do is create the conditions for our communities to be together. And then they want to be together more. So uh, that is the perfect segue to tell me how the Bent Arrow Traditional Healing Society and Islamic Family and Social Services Association, how, how and when did you decide to work together? How did that relationship start? Well, I think it started um, when Canada turned 150. Um, because we actually had a, we still do have a partnership with Edmonton Mennonite Center for Newcomers. And the newcomer serving agencies all have a relationship with one another. It's like a sector sort of table that they sit at, mm -hmm. sit at and talk about trends and, and things like that and how they're going to serve newcomers in a good way collectively. And so that's how we started um, hanging out with Omar and his crew. And again, just thinking of ways um, we can have our communities be together, continue that dialogue, continue that learning from one another, um, share in each other's celebrations, um, all of those things. And, um, you know, I, I often tell Omar that we consider him family at Bentero. And so, um, you know, we're a part of this family together. And so we have a responsibility when, when you consider someone family. Um, so that's yeah. kind of, the, I think, the place we're at in our relationship now. And when they call, we answer. When we call, they yeah. answer. <laughs> it's, a, it's a completely lopsided relationship in that we benefit <laughs> Uh, incredibly from, from working with Ben Arrow. Uh, they teach us so, so much. I think one thing that's really fundamental, and I think Cheryl already alluded to this, is um, you know when we think about some of the, the ails in society, uh, a lot of them come from calcified mindsets. And the, the solution to that is actually coming or returning to tradition. And I, I love the way Cheryl does that, right? If we're talking about the criminal justice system, and the inequities in it, 
we can't fight that by perpetuating the criminal justice system. We have to fight it with tradition and a different worldview. And when we our organizations come together and we learn about each other's worldviews, there's something very reassuring about that, not feeling we're alone and saying, you know, there's an alternative to, to retribution, there's restoration. And how do we work together on that? Because we both see this problem in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, when we think about, you know, the, the challenges in children's services, um, we both come from worldviews that see lineage as sacred, right? Mm-hmm. And how do, we, how do we work to get the system to understand that? Um, yeah. And so there's, there's countless ways we benefit from learning from Bent Arrow. It was interesting because when we were talking about Bill C-8 in the Senate, one of my, my good friends in the, in the Senate, uh, Senator Omnivar, talked about sort of the distance between immigrant and Indigenous communities. Now, she's from, she's from very urban Toronto, where I think things are different. Mm. But I wondered if you think the work you're doing in Edmonton, your two organizations and the Edmonton Mennonite Center for Newcomers and Catholic Social Services all together, um, and, and with the other groups that you've partnered with too, do you think Edmonton can be a leader and a model for other parts of the country in this kind of work? I think Edmonton has a very collaborative mindset, right? It's very permeable, right? You want to talk to someone there, they're likely to pick up the phone. And that's, that's really unique. And I think it's, it's harder to do that as cities get larger. But Edmonton's in this this sweet small town kind of spot where it's, yeah. oh, everybody just wants to see everybody succeed. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that one hundred percent. So, in many of my Alberta Unbound interviews, in all of them really, I've asked people to tell me what it means to them to be an Albertan, to define their own mm-hmm. Alberta identity. So, in the context of what we've been discussing, I'd like to ask you both that same question now. I mean, what does it mean to you to be an Albertan, and especially at this? very specific moment in our history um for me um it it is a second chance it is opportunity in my family's experience that's what alberta has been to us um and um it is a very um edmonton anyway is a very uh small town in a big city kind of feel and there are so few degrees of separation between everybody in the city it feels like and so um that's always been my experience we 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 got a second chance when we came out here we uh took every advantage of all the opportunities that this land had to offer and i just feel very grateful uh to be called to to call myself an albertan now yeah and Omar, for you? You know, I think about the part of Alberta I'm from, from Edmonton and originally Mundare. And, you know, the thing I miss when I leave Alberta is the sky, right? How vast the sky is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think what that does is it situates me on my, on my landscape and it situates me to be a bit more humble, right? I think when we're in smaller confines, it's easier to think of ourselves as more significant. But to, to be Albertan to me means... Know, being humble, um, recognizing uh, how small we are in comparison to the landscape, but also, I think, as, as we were talking about earlier, uh, recognizing how interconnected we are, recognizing our opportunities to, to do things and like the, the, um, the ways we can support each other. Right? I think that's what really makes Alberta, Alberta for me, right? Because you can't get through winter by yourself. Um, yeah, no, I mean, this is a place where, you know, from from 
from the very first peoples who were ever here. You had to you had to live cooperatively or you would die because this yeah. is an un, it's an unforgiving landscape. And you're right. It's a landscape that puts you in your place. When you look up at that sky, it says to you, you know, uh, understand your relationship to the greater mm -hmm. world. Uh, it's 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 a very particular place to be. Mm -hmm. So earlier this month, Albertans and Canadians were horrified and stricken to learn the news of previously unknown bodies of 215 Indigenous children that had been found at an old residential school in Kamloops. And many people from all backgrounds came together to grieve. But I think, you know, we could at some level tell ourselves that those deaths were in the past and that they came from a different time. And then last week, four members of a Pakistani Muslim family in London, Ontario, were killed when a truck drove into them. And Canadians were again horrified and stricken when police alleged that this had been a deliberate hate crime. Um, people came together again to grieve. Two such horrible things, and the juxtaposition of them is, of course, coincidental, but also not. And I wonder, what do you think those two losses together tell us about the foundations of our country? I mean, what do they call us? What do they call us to reckon with? I think it laid us bare. Um, mm. For me, that's one of the things that I um, I feel like happened in the last couple of weeks was um, weren't previously unknown. They were by our communities well known yeah. to be there um if you look at the trc report there is mention of them in there um so i just think seeing the stark number on on a on a news ticker or breaking news and having it sort of being fed to you constantly i also think we're at a part of our journey as a nation where um we can we can't ignore some of these things anymore it's just becoming really hard to um to ignore them and so this reckoning is sort of in front of us and we have this opportunity to sort of um, take it um, or keep going the way we were before which is not um, is not serving anybody well in my opinion so um, I had taken up the and there's differing opinions on this I'm of the opinion where if people want to talk I'm going to talk and I've seen sort of um, things on social media where people are saying, you know, don't bombard people in the Indigenous community about what do I do, what do I do, um, because I don't know why, because I think if people are asking, it's an opportunity to engage in that conversation. And I certainly, even though it was really tiring, took every opportunity if people wanted to have that conversation. So that's kind of where I'm at. I, and um, we, we have that opportunity and I hope it doesn't die in the headlines and we start sort of going back to the way things were because um that that doesn't serve anybody very well so yeah i i'm still grappling with what it means because it's super heavy and difficult but you know i think i know what we we need to do as a result of it and i think that's that's building relationship right the only way out is is recognizing you know uh, the the way we process this grief, uh, this uh, fissure in our notion of safety, if we if we even had it, is is by doing something to support one another. 
Um, and I feel that's the only way out. Otherwise, I think it's, uh, you know, it's really easy to, to fall into despair. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was, it was like, it's the ugliest of coincidences that the very same day that police in London, Ontario announced that the Afzal family had allegedly been victims of a targeted hate crime. The very same day, hmm. I think a court in Thunder Bay, Ontario sentenced a young man named Braden yep. Bushby to eight years for manslaughter. Um, people who may remember this case, he threw a trailer hitch out of a car window that uh, hit, oh. wounded, and eventually killed a young Indigenous woman named Barbara Kentner. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who sees the parallel between these two cases. Um, in the Bushby case, he was he was 18 at the time. Uh, in the Afzal case, the uh, the you know the alleged uh, the alleged killer in that case is 20. I mean, these are young men so full of lethal and cowardly hate. Uh, I mean, how, you know, how do we, how do we respond to that? How do we, you know, how do we confront that kind of toxic poison in, in, in the foundation of our communities? I think we start with the children, you know, children are born with empathy and um you know every chance i get i take uh, my little grandnieces um home with me um they've been homeschooling here i'm helping out their parents so that they don't have to homeschool both of them and um you know when i picked one of them up on the weekend on friday um i i said so did you hear about this and what did you know did your teacher talk to you about it oh and what did you guys talk about and she shared the conversation that's happening in the schools in her school her teacher is indigenous um so the conversation they had may be very different than maybe a non-indigenous teacher but i think we need to have those conversations with the kids they just are born with this innate sense of empathy for one another for mankind for everything and um uh just having this conversation with my my little niece on the way home she she gets it and she's not traumatized by it um she isn't carrying it the way i think us adults are carrying it um but recognizes the the real black and white line of right and wrong and what we're what we did that we shouldn't have done and what we should never do again um and um so i i think quite simply we need to start with the kids those 18 and 20 year olds you're talking about senator were kids at one point and they were fed a very different story um a very different sense of like righteousness that that made them walk around feeling like they they had a right to do this with impunity um and uh, and now we're starting to see a, a justice system that can't ignore can't ignore this anymore and they need they're starting to call it what it is um so anyway that's that's kind of where i come from and um I also think um, anger is a very human emotion, but we can't stay there because if we stay there, and I'm talking about on any side, if you stay there, um, you can't grow from it. You can't move on from it in a good way. And so uh, I don't want to tell people not to be angry, but I want to tell people not to stay in that angry place because it doesn't lead you to um, a place that you want to be. Um, yeah. How do we harness that? anger for righteousness. I think one of the things that's worrying to me is, you know, a call for retribution, right? And that, that to me is using like 
broken tools to solve a broken problem, yes. right? Like what got us here is this this idea of the criminal justice system as like a um, a way to punish people, not to heal them, mm -hmm. right? And you know, if I look at the response to the uh, the Quebec shooter, right, and things they're doing in Quebec to change the criminal justice system there, you know, as as Muslims, I feel like okay, we we don't really want this person to be stuck in jail indefinitely we want to see them heal right that's that's the obligation of our faith if we're really living it right it's not to punish people right and our our, our system of justice is is not based on retribution it's based on restoration which we share with indigenous people here um i think we also have to dig deeper too you know if we look at the recent hate crimes in edmonton with the um you know black women in hijab uh, three of the five recent cases, at least that I know about, uh, if you look at the court case, uh, court dockets, the people have no listed address. Yeah, yeah. What does I mean, that tell is, you? They're yeah, they're they're talking about pe you know people who are homeless, people who are mentally ill, but yeah. but I don't think the mental illness is the excuse. But it, it comes back to that ambient sense of you know people being told and absorbing somehow that that this is bad, foreign, scary. And, and then it, you know, it, it expresses itself that way. Mm. Yeah. So, so, I mean, I guess it's a difficult question, but I mean, to what extent do you feel safe when you're out for a walk? Do, do, do members of your communities feel safe? I mean, to what extent do stories like these whether it's the you know the, the ones we've talked about from ontario or the the incidents here where people have been targeted and screamed at you know in the lrt going around their business in both edmonton and calgary i mean how does that color the way you go out into the world um this is my land <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and so I, um, I, I don't really think about it. I, I try not to think about it. Um, some days I do think about it um, and it's not a good way to live. Um, yeah. So, you know, I combat it by the work that I do, the relationships that I have uh, fostered and grown. Um, and I'm hoping that they don't, serve just the community that Bantero serves, but like all of, you know, all of the community we have here in, um, in Edmonton. One of the things I, I see when I'm out walking is I'm starting to see these lawn signs come up, Black mm. Lives Matter, Indigenous Lives Matter. And so when I see those signs, I feel like safer because someone in that neighborhood has made a declaration that this is important. Pride flags uh, hanging out, hanging out uh, from, from the front porches. Um, they're, they're, to me, a signal of um, a citizen that lives in that home that believes that we all have a place here and that there's room for all of us to be in this place together. And um, so those things really speak loudly to me. The, the ability we have digitally, I think, to share and communicate with one another um, and elevate each other's stories and um, experiences, I think, is also um, helpful because uh, we're starting to become more aware of each other um, here. Yeah, I, I wish I could say it wasn't heavy and it wasn't 
uh, causing second guessing. But, um, you know, maybe that the solace for me is, is thinking, you know, thinking about tradition, right? And what tradition says is we're not, we're not really fixated on results. Like we don't really care about that because the results aren't in our hands, but the process is, right? Mm -hmm. And so taking that step, being kind to people, uh, trying to be contributors um, and going out in society with that mindset, I think that's what's important. That's what gives me hope. And, you know, also knowing I, I don't have any other place to go, but here, this is, <laughs> so what alternatives do I have other than try to commit to a process that's, that's about healing and connection and relationship. So in light of everything that's happened over this year and this month, what will National Indigenous Peoples Day and World Refugee Day mean to you this year? I think it's, for me, it's the same. Like it's an opportunity to share. Um, I always say we have a really wonderful prequel that Canada sort of knows this dark, you know, um, they keep calling it the dark chapter. And that's kind of what people know about indigenous people is this dark chapter. And I always say we have this really great prequel. And that is what Indigenous Peoples Day is all about. It's about our songs. It's about our ceremonies. It's about um, the way we um, see one another and interact with one another. Um, and it's all those good things. Um, when we do um, even Indigenous awareness teachings, with which a lot of like corporations make mandatory, they're trying to be, um, you know, they're trying to pay attention to this stuff in their work. Um, all of our training in that area is all about those good things. Um, yeah. As one of our leaders put it, and I agree with him 100%, we aren't residential schools. That's not who we are. That's what happened to us. We aren't 60 scoop. That's what happened to us. We are our, our languages. We are our ceremonies. We are our connection to the land and connection to one another. So that's what Indigenous Peoples Day will always be for me is that opportunity to, to share that with anybody who wants to lean in and learn more because it's beautiful. Yeah, likewise. And I think it's this, this huge opportunity to talk about what we're building together, right? Like we're you know, we're not leaving our culture behind, we're taking it forward, right? Culture is this dialogue between the past and the present when it's healthy. And what excites me is, uh, is this, you know, this uh, melding of stories and how we learn from one another. And I feel, I feel Indigenous Peoples Day, World Refugee Day, World Refugee Day Roots on Six is, uh, you know, this opportunity to actually have fun. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what excites me, right? I'm, super excited about the drumming and uh you know the melding of drumming styles and learning from that because it's it's exciting right and if you lift people's spirit i think so many good things can come from that cheryl and omar thank you so much this has been a really terrific conversation and a happy national indigenous people's day and happy world refugee day thank you thank you, thank you for having us that's been my conversation with Dr. Cheryl Whiskey-Jack, the Executive Director of the Bent Arrow Traditional Healing Society, and Omar Yaqub, Servant of Servants at Edmonton's Islamic Family and Social Services Association, recorded in Edmonton on June 13, 2021. Thank you for listening to this bespoke edition of Alberta Unbound. The producer and editor of Alberta Unbound is Ame Charnalia, and Ame and I and our fabulous summer intern, Dina Dong, are already hard at work on a new full season of Alberta Unbound, 
one we hope to have online for you in a couple of months. I'm Senator Paula Simons. Thank you. Merci. Hi, hi.